got to the point where, okay, I don't, I don't really care. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm getting my 40s now. Uh, if, if an NHL team doesn't want to hire me for this reason, if someone didn't want me to work for their team for this reason, if someone doesn't want to be my friend for this reason, okay, that's fine. I'm okay with it. And welcome back to the Outfield Podcast, episode 28. Hope you had a happy new year. I'm sorry for waiting two months to do this show, but this one's worth the wait because there are times when I will do podcasts where you'll interview amazing people and you'll be glad you've done that. And I'm happy with every interview I've ever done. And then there are episodes of this podcast and the others I've done are like, this is just my brand. I feel so comfortable doing interviews like this because today I'm interviewing an out hockey announcer. It's perfect for me. Jason Shia of the Utica Comets. Welcome to the show, my friend. How are you doing? Thanks. It's great to be here. I appreciate you having me on. As I said, I am more excited than ever interviewing an out hockey announcer. It is just, it's too perfect for what I, I do and my loves in life. And it's been a couple months since you've come out. Uh, the world has gone to hell and back since then. But I want to ask how you've <laughs> been doing now that uh, you're out and free and open in the world. Oh, wow. It's... Um... It's definitely at times feeling, you know, just totally normal. And, and other times it's, it's, you know, I, I think I want to say liberated because I didn't feel like I was imprisoned at all, but um, I feel more comfortable with who I am. And the biggest thing for me is my um, relationship with some of my closest friends feels that much better. And um, I'm overall happy that I made the decision I made. It was the most difficult decision probably of my life. And was the most nerve-wracking, but I remember hearing from Patrick Burke saying that even though it was tough, that once it happened, I would be very happy with the decision. He felt that way. Crazy. At the moment, especially when it was happening, I was like, oh my God, what did I just do to myself? But it was it was definitely worth it. And then all the interactions I had with people who I didn't know, or people that I did know and said, you know, I have a, a, a gay son, or I have a, a gay daughter, or something that, you know, affected my family. And you know, we thank you for your story. And that's what, that's why I did it the way I did, because I wanted, I wanted the next person to be able to feel comfortable and have it not be as difficult as it was for me. It's hard when you're getting through all of this because you don't know you're, you're entering the breach and we'll get to this as we go throughout the show, but the way people see you changes when you do this, no matter what happens, the people that love you, the people that care about you and the people that don't know about you. Uh, in your story, it changes when you come out. And that's really hard because you don't know what life's going to be like on the other side, even though almost every experience in this is good. But you're also in hockey and that complicates matters. So I want to start from the beginning because some people out there might not know your story or they read your story and it's been a while since they've checked back in on you. So first of all, tell everybody where you grew up, your family situation and uh, how you got into this wonderful sport of hockey. I grew up in Detroit, so in my blood, it was to be a hockey fan. All the, my first love, because I'm, a, I'm born in 1980, were the Edmonton Oilers, because I would watch CBC on Hockey Night in Canada and watch Gretzky, and thought he was you know, the greatest thing of all time. Plus, in the early, early 80s, Red Wings were no good. But then as I got older, of course, it was all Detroit. My dad was a huge Red Wings fan and took me to Jewelers Arena when I was, I don't know, probably eight years old or so for my first game. And you know, my dad and mom were not from this country, but the, but my, my dad really embraced American culture. He had no accent at all. He lost his accent completely. Um, you know, he really wanted us to be Americans, and he gave us American names, too. So they didn't, they didn't teach us how to speak Arabic. They wanted us to just be American kids, and so we embraced 
everything that this country had, including, believe it or not, two parents, you know, my dad from Iraq, there, I guarantee there weren't many hockey games being played in Baghdad in the 1950s, but uh, my dad became a huge Red Wings fan, and so it rubbed off on me. So hockey was my life growing up. I played for a bit as a kid, and just a very expensive sport, an income from money, so we couldn't really afford to keep me in it. But I, I never lost my love for the game and uh, continue to this day to think it's the greatest sport in the world. It is. I want to talk about that because your dad being from Iraq is a, is a really integral part of the story. Obviously, there's a big Muslim community outside of Detroit, which wasn't as big as it is now. But I think that's also part of the story because when you think about this sport in particular and how difficult it is for people to get into it who aren't already part of the hockey circle, your story, I think, not, not just with coming out, but with this, is very interesting because... Well, well, let me just say, stop you, because uh, I'm actually, my parents are religious minorities from, from Iraq. We're actually Catholics, so... Okay, okay. Uh, we're, yeah, we're, we're Chaldean Catholics. I was uh, baptized in the Chaldean the Catholic Church, which is a, a church that is uh, uh, autonomous to Rome and its traditions, but adheres to the authority and teachings of the magisterium of the papacy. So uh, that's, uh, yeah, it, it, it is true. We're from, uh, from Iraq, but yeah, not, not Muslim, um, but obviously my parents grew up in a, in a, in a Muslim ethos. But again, that's still, I think, coming from Iraq and coming to this country and having one of the first things you latch on to be hockey is interesting. Because when you think about American culture in the 80s, it's not the thing that I would think people would latch on to immediately. And it's, it's a lesson that the sport needs to take from stories like this. Because, again, this sport is not as big as it could be because people in communities like that never get the chance to consider hockey. Because why would they? There, it feels like there's pressure to keep them out. And this story, I think, is always, is always worth saying, no, anybody could get into the hockey, and it doesn't matter who you are. The sport's great once you get into it. It's just you have to get past that first barrier, and that's sometimes difficult. Well, I think the, I think the real impediment to hockey is the, is the money. <laughs> I mean, You're this right. has become a sport that is so incredibly expensive. So one of my friends uh, who's a coach in the NHL and, and – he told me his son going through the um, travel system, you know, they were talking about, I think it was between the travel, the gear and all the other stuff, twelve, fifteen thousand $15,000 out of your pocket. I mean, this is an incredible amount of money to spend on an activity for your son. And you just can't do that. If you're a lower middle-class family, it's, I, I, it's impossible. I think you have to grow up with some level of affluence because the ice times and the gear and everything else and the travel and the hotels and everything else, it's just incredibly expensive. So to me, the biggest impediment to our sport is the price that it costs to be a part of it. And that's why I think we see a lot of kids whose parents played in the NHL or whose, you know, whose parents just came from, from, from a lot of money. And You're absolutely that right. To me is, yeah, to me, is, it's not – culture's culture, right? Like, so you know, there's a reason that the greatest piano makers in the world are German. There's nothing inherent in the soil in Germany that makes you a great a piano well, maker. It's just well. it's in, it's in it's in it's within the it's within the culture. And the same thing that you know, if you grow up in Ontario and you are from Toronto, there's a good chance you're going to be exposed to hockey as opposed to growing up in Tuscaloosa. I mean, so it's it that's a to me, that's the part of it that is, you know, a, 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 a really you know that's, that's a big deal. It's true. It's true, and I think the, the the cost of the sport obviously is a huge problem, and we can oh, get yeah. to that another time. Uh, but I want to get with with you uh, and this love of hockey. I mean, 
you're, you're, you had the perfect time when you were a teenager to be a hockey fan in Detroit. And so yeah, that I only did. cements your love further, right? Yeah. Yeah. We, we, I, we, we talk, me and my buddies talk about that. We could not have grown up in a better era if you're going to love the sport of hockey to be in Detroit with one of the greatest teams to ever take the ice over the span of what is, I don't know, 20 years. I mean, the way I look at it, because I'm selfish, we only won four Stanley Cups. How, how awful is it to only have won four? I can't believe I only won four. I should have won six or seven, which I've been fine with that. Uh, but yes, I did grow up in a great era with one of the greatest players of all time, Steve Eiserman, my goaltending hero, and Chris Osgood. What a, what a time it was to be a part of, uh, of Detroit and love that team. I also I get the sense of that team because I talked with Igor Larionov's son, and you get the just even talking about those teams like it, it doesn't feel again like it was that long ago, but it was right. You know, yeah, yeah. And yeah it's you it's about one of those teams that I think it, it's so formative in just how I mean, considering other discourse around hockey as we record this in the middle of January 2022 about certain people who were involved in that team, maybe the residue of that of those great teams is still very much with us, even though again. It feels like they were closer, you know, in, in the time scales that we're in, but they weren't. It's just, it's just well, funny. I look back I, at, at 2002 because that was my favorite of all the cups. And you go down the lineup. And, of course, Igor Larionov was on the fourth line on that team. Think about that for a second, right? Yeah, it's, it's, he, it's Holmstrom, I'm gonna, and Luke Robitaille. That comprised, that comprised the fourth line of that 2002 team. Two of them are Hall of Famers. And so it's crazy. Um, what they were able to put on the ice as a uh, as a group and to get to watch that and you know those are things you'll never forget and once you've gotten into that and you've experienced it you're never going to go away from it so uh no no i i agree yeah and so then when you realize that playing's not gonna work out which is the way it goes for a lot of us who watch the sport what got you into broadcasting it was it just the natural way to stay involved in the sport even though you couldn't play uh, yeah, but, uh, you know, I started off my broadcasting career in, in professional wrestling, so I thought I was going to be a uh, pro we'll wrestler. We'll get to that, too. Yes. Okay, so that was my – that was, you know, I, I was in the wrestling business in the golden era, and I got the chance to be there at its height and then kind of as it, as it declined. But that, to me, was what I wanted to do originally. It sounds so stupid now, but that's what I wanted to do originally is be a part of it. And then once that ended, I became a sports producer – and I was working at the local NBC affiliate in Detroit, and it was one of the worst working experiences of my life, having to be around a live news station that was lusting for blood so they could put something on the front, you know, the front, the front of the news. And I just thought, boy, what a toxic environment this is. I got to get out of this thing. And I worked for a sports caster who was a, who was a sports director who was just not a good, nice guy. It was really, really horrible to be around. So I lost my love of that. And then... I worked alongside a gentleman named Fred McLeod. Fred McLeod at the time was the fill-in voice of the Detroit Pistons. Uh, and Fred was one of the most meticulous people I'd ever met in my life. He was a com total and complete perfectionist to the point where it made your blood boil because you, you could never get anything past him. But the, well, the times I saw him happiest and smiling and, and having a good time was when he was calling basketball games, his love. And I thought, boy, you know, I don't care about money. I just want to be happy doing what I'm doing. And at that point, I knew I wasn't going to get married and have kids because that was off the table. So I figured, you know, I'm going to take myself and put myself in a position where maybe I could be a hockey play-by-play -play broadcaster. And I had listened to Bob Cole, 
huge Bob Cole fan, huge Gary Thorne fan. Those were the top two guys in that era, you know, and everything they put on television was like poetry. It was like a song. And I, I thought, man, I want to do this too. And so there was a team locally in Fraser, Michigan, in the United Hockey League called the Motor City Mechanics. They needed a broadcaster. I'm not even sure how I found out they needed a broadcaster, but I did find out they needed one. And I had uh, been calling high school games. I had a DVD and I gave the president of the team that DVD. He listened to it. He liked it. And they hired me to call games for him. Seems so simple, right? <laughs> it does seem simple. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't think it's that easy anymore, especially because a lot of no, you know, those, not. those leagues are gone. As, yeah, it's, as, it's, a, it's, as somebody who's going through this business right now, I wish it was that easy. It ain't. <laughs> Not even the close. first job, I think the first job is the absolute hardest to get because you have no, not a lot of people have experience with it. So to get your foot in the door right away. But once you get your foot in the door, and I, I've told this to people, my, my thing is when kids call me or young people call me and say, I want to be a play-by-play broadcaster, I would be um, negligent to dissuade them, or to not dissuade them. I dissuade them from being broadcasters. And the reason is very simple. If you want to be a doctor, and you take your, the requisite exams and you finish your MCAT and you get a license, you can practice medicine. Again, the customers may not come to you because you may not be very good at it. You may get sued, but you could be a doctor if you do all the, all the work. And most doctors, you know, we go through it. They, they, do it, they get through it for a reason. If you want to be a lawyer, you go to law school, you pass the bar, you, you can open up a building, and you are now a lawyer in whatever specific area you'd like to practice. But if you want to call games in the National Hockey League, you may spend your entire career and never be interviewed for a job in the NHL. Forget getting the job in the NHL. You may never be interviewed for a job. It's, it's, there are only so many seats at the table. People don't want to leave, and I don't blame them, and they stay there until they have to carry them away. There just aren't many openings, and as a result, the, the jobs are highly, highly competitive. So I would never say to somebody, Oh, yeah, you should take your – I know you have a biology degree, but you should go and be a play-by-play broadcaster because you love hockey. I would say, no, take your degree or get a degree in something that someone's going to pay you for for the rest of your life. Become a chemical engineer. Become an engineer. You'll make tons of money. Or go work in the trades. Go work, in, go work as an HVAC guy. Go work as a, as a, as a welder. You'll never be out of work. Get a, become an electrician. Become a mechanic. And people hear that and go, oh, you want me to work with my hands? No, I'm saying get a job that will pay you for the rest of your life that you'll be able to retire at a decent age and never in your existence ever have to worry if I'm going to be able to make uh, the, the rent check next month. But to be a hockey broadcaster is crazy. I mean, it, you know, I called games in the NHL. I was, I was so fortunate. And I may never call games in the NHL again. I don't know what the future holds. I have no idea. But it, it, it makes me cry thinking about the fact that I could spend my entire career, which is going on 17 seasons, and never end up doing the thing that I love the most at the highest level. I understand it completely, but I am an irrational person. That's why I'm still doing this. And when you love something, particularly in sports, where fandom is completely irrational, uh, you make irrational decisions. But broadcasting is fun, and you don't work when you're broadcasting. I have never broadcast a game where I thought, man, this was work. Even the worst games <laughs> you've done. This isn't, this isn't work. This is fun. I'm talking for a living. I spent my life in one people because I'm talking. I, 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 would, I would disagree. Everybody acts rationally. There, I would say there is no such thing as an irrational actor. But, but, but your point is taken very well. You're doing it because you love it. And, and the joy that you get from the love 
outweighs the potential of maybe not doing it at the NHL level. So yes, you always will, you know, work towards what your ends you believe is the best ends, right? So I get it. I understand what you're saying. But my point is, it is a much safer path. But you're right. If everybody only took the safe path, then a lot of dreams would become unfulfilled. I, that, I understand. That's why, hey, listen, we're in the same, same avenue here. I mean, I, I don't, obviously, I don't disagree with you because if I thought it was so stupid, I'd leave. Unfortunately for me, I'm 41. And so, you know, I've, I've gone this far and I feel that I have enough that I, if, if a job became open tomorrow, that I would have enough to be considered on the on the uh, basis of my career already. Um, if I could see everything, if you, could, you know, life is unfortunately only lived in one direction. But if I could go back in time, I'm not so sure I would have chosen this path. That's the, that's the truth. I'm not sure I would have. I mean, that's fair enough. But we're here, so might we're as well here. make the most. We're, we're here. here. Might as well make the most of it. I know. I agree. Well, you and I have a lot in common here. Uh, and let's circle back now. There's so much I want to get to with you, of course. But let's circle back to the reason why you're here, which is your sexuality. And you hinted at it before. Um, and in, in the piece with Bob McKenzie, I also want to get into that, of course. But you mentioned you knew around 12 to 13 that you were different. And I, I like asking people about the part of their lives when they're figuring this out. Because for everyone, it's different. And for you, what was that experience like? Because this is the 90s, not exactly the greatest time to be figuring this out, let's be fair. So what was that experience like for you as you started, you know, being the fan of sports that you are and then working in the hyper-masculine world of wrestling to understand your sexuality? Yeah, you're right. I think hyper-masculine is probably okay of a word. I might Um, undersell that, actually, 90s wrestling, now that I think about it. I mean, listen, I mean, you know, it was a different era, an era I enjoyed very much and have no problems with whatsoever. I think society has become too sensitive, but I did love that chance to be a part of something that was like that. I never really weighed and said, oh, well, you know, I'm a certain way and therefore I should probably take a step back. No, I've always kind of been a contrarian in that sense Um, and never and never. Uh, figured into any equation for me like oh maybe I shouldn't go in because I'm this way because I just thought well it's okay I will just conceal who I am and that's what I did for the majority of my life I just concealed who I was and moved forward with my career and that's hard there's a lot of baggage that comes with doing that as everyone now who can tell their story publicly will tell you it it sucks you don't want to have to do that, but I mean, in the eras that you were coming of age in, yeah, kind of had to. There wasn't much of a choice. There wasn't no, exactly right. anybody no, out yeah, there who, who's a, a I, model for I it. agree. I agree. I, 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 there wasn't really anybody, and that's why over time it became so much easier. I was not a trailblazer in any sense. I'm one of uh, an, another person that was able to do it because the people who came before me. And um, you are exactly right. It wasn't like there was a, a pattern of people who were accepted. Um, and I don't know, by the way, if I would have come out early in my career, would I have made it very far? And I don't, I have no idea. You can't, you can do the thought experiment all you want. Maybe I would have, maybe I wouldn't have. I have no idea. I just don't, I wasn't ready for it. You know, I just wasn't ready to say that out loud. I think, so forget everything else. It was just basically about me and my, my mindset. Uh, we can go through that thought experiment. I have my answer. If 
we're talking about hockey, I think I know what the answer would have been because it's hockey. Uh, but it, also it doesn't matter because it never happened and you're out now and the world is very different, thankfully, and you've been able to be yourself. But just go through that, that journey and you didn't talk about it. You mentioned that in the, in the piece that you just never talked about it. It was internalized. And how hard must that have been for you? Like you couldn't talk about this with anybody because you knew like, maybe it's like you, you don't know what the risks are at that time when, if you, if you mention yeah. it to anybody. Yeah, that's true. Um, you don't know. Um, I'm a, I think by nature, I think maybe I'm a private person and a, I would call myself an introvert. So I typically spend a lot of time alone and I'm not a gregarious person as an, as a, as my disposition isn't. So I think, I don't know if it came that way as a result of having to, shield myself from social gatherings so people didn't ask me questions that were awkward or awkward to me anyways i also learned as time went on it's very hard to weave a web of lies and remember what the hell the lies are much easier to remember the truth um so you just have to stay away from those certain situations and that's what i did i just i just put myself into a little bit of a of a bubble and so you, you kind of alleviate the stress or the anxiety of being asked hey are you you know you're 35, do you, are you, do you have a girlfriend? Which was the, the question I hated the most. Do you have a girlfriend? Are you, you know, and I would always have to try to make, you know, change the subject, you know, and, and get misdirection. And I just hated doing that. So I just put myself in a position where people didn't ask me questions about myself, you know? And that's hard because, you know, we are social creatures by definition. And it's hard sure. to yeah. go through your life, particularly when you're in a business like this one, where interacting with people is part of the job requirement. And, well, you're doing your best to not interact with people because you're worried about the questions they might ask you. That's not well, easy to say, live with. Say, yeah, I would say interactions with people on a social level, much different than interacting with coaches and players and staff members about the business that you're working in. So that there is a clear delineation. I'm not having uh, beers with the, the hockey players, certainly not. And I'm not, you know, I don't, we have conversations on the air. I don't really have, conversations much off the air at all so but in but in you know when you're you know you're calling games in a, in a in a major city or you're you're working for a team and somebody knows and you're afraid someone's going to tell somebody else and how that information becomes filtered down and all those things play in your mind you know just it is scary you just don't want someone else to find out information about you that you weren't ready to give them it's closeted brain it's classic sure. closeted brain yeah that's that's it's sure. It's not the nicest term for it, but that's what it is. You know, you, you I, want I to tell your disagree. own story. Yeah. And it's hard yeah, to yeah. tell your own story when you've concocted not a web of lies, but a universe in which everything could be a way that somebody finds out that you're gay or that you're queer. It's, it's one of those things that is extremely difficult. And everyone goes through it at some level. Some people go through it worse than others, but that's what this is. And especially if you're growing up in a time when, as you did, and coming of age in a time when society was definitively not accepting of this or was very, very, very in, much in the early stages of it, how are you supposed to do anything else? Because the consequences or the consequences you think are going to come when you come out or if somebody finds out are possibly massive. It's, yeah, it's a tough they are, way to I mean, live. You don't know. It's, it's, a great, it's a good point. I mean, you just don't know, but there's also the part of you, it, it, I, I, for me anyways, it got to the point where I no longer cared 
what somebody thought. I didn't care what a stranger thought anymore. It took me a while to get there. I, I forget who I was reading. I don't know if it was Schopenhauer. I don't think it was, but talking about how we fill our lives with the idea of, you know, selfishness, not, not selfishness, I would say in a bad way, but we are inherently, you know, positioned to think about ourselves and the ramifications. And yet we go around a lot worrying about what other people think. And that's a weird dichotomy. Like, you know, I'm worried about myself, but at the, at the same time, I just want to know what do people accept me? Do people like me? And got to the point where, okay, I don't, I don't really care. <laughs> you know, I'm getting my forties now. Uh, if, if, if an NHL team doesn't want to hire me for this reason, if someone didn't want me to work for their team for this reason, if someone doesn't want to be my friend for this reason, okay, that's fine. I'm okay with it. I'm, I'm all right. I just want to work for someone that wants me to work for them. And I work for a team now and uh, in, in, in Utica. And I, I, I love coming to work. I love working for Robert Ash. It is, it is the best team I've ever worked for. I mean, I can say that without hesitation. I love this place. And I take pride in the fact that I'm the voice of Utica Comets, that we, we have some, I think, the best television product in the entire American Hockey League. And I'm really, really proud to say that I work here. And I, I wouldn't have come out if I wasn't happy with my surroundings. And I was very, very happy working here. Almost instantaneously, they made me feel at home. And uh, that's the biggest reason for me to say, all right, I'm comfortable in my own surroundings. And you need that. Because if you're not comfortable yeah. with your own surroundings, and that has happened with a ton of people in this sport in particular, when they come out, whether whatever side of the sport you're on, if you're not comfortable in your own surroundings, you're never going to be able to do this. I was I 100% agree with you, and that I think that's exactly the point for me. You know, it, I, I'm also because I was getting a little older, but but I would agree completely. I was uncomfortable in my surroundings with the people that I was working for in Charlotte, North Carolina. I just wasn't comfortable at all. It was very, for me, uh, combative and uncomfortable. And I would never have considered coming out if I worked there. I don't mean to be mean. I'm not trying to disparage anyone. It's just for me personally, that's how I personally felt about my situation. There it was not for me somewhere that I was comfortable. Um, and I know I, you know, I don't want to get into the details, but coming here and working for Robert, I was thrilled and I was thrilled. And I thought, you know, I could finally be at ease. It's very interesting. I hear the name Robert Ash, and I think mid two thousands Flyers goaltending woes. Growing up in the in the area and thinking, ah, oh, the Flyers are looking for a goaltender. Is Robert Ash starting tonight? Oh, uh oh, somebody's gonna yeah, be mad yeah. on WIP tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> I Robert's mean, a great that's no guy. offense to yeah. him. That's no offense to him. I'm just saying that those are my memories. You know, mid two thousands Philadelphia Flyers stuff. You know, well, I don't know hockey. I, I, I grew Robert, up watching. I remember, I remember Robert, Robert playing in the Eastern Conference Finals in Game Seven, and they lost to Tampa, and he played a great game. And I loved watching that era of goaltending and that era of hockey. It was a lot of fun. Not many people are going to say the early two thousands were a great time for hockey. You will. Well, so congrats. We, yeah, I'm glad you said yeah, it. I, I, I will because our team, uh, the Detroit, well, yeah, Detroit you, were dominating. You're saying so. it because Detroit was winning everything. Obviously. Yes, exactly. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, me, would I say that? I wasn't a huge hockey fan at that point, so maybe not. But the things you remember at that time. But I want to get into a couple of other bits of your journey because I do want to talk about just briefly the wrestling. And I didn't know anything about wrestling until I got on Twitter. And now I know everything about wrestling. Maybe it also happens because I'm a Jaguars fan and that's AEW, but let's not go into that direction right now. Uh, but for you, just working in wrestling, uh, what was that? like for you young man coming into your own in sports media and here you are you're working at wrestling in the late 90s 
total chaos yeah. happening at that in the sport at that time. We'll get back to the hockey in a second, but I just want to touch on this briefly because it it's worth talking about. Well, it's something that would never happen today um, in in any situation. They weren't going to hire someone who was 17. I was 17 when I was hired by World Championship Wrestling to be an independent contractor to do what was like uh, you know 900 numbers that people would call and pay money to listen about inside scoops and all that. Again, it sounds like I'm talking about a rotary telephone or something, but or an era of go- you know it's gone by, which it has. The internet was in its nascent stages. Nobody used the internet for the purposes they use it today. People didn't have uh, connectivity to get on the internet back in the 1990s. Not everybody did. So, you know, when you're talking about AOL and dial-ups in the early 2000s, so people were still well, using I'm the phone. I'm hearing the phones. AOL dial-up tone in my head right now. Right, right. So you're still, that's the, the early stages. So, you know, looking at it that way, that's, they heard me doing something locally in Detroit. I say they, an executive named Zane Bresloff who worked for the awesome promotions it was called at the time out of Colorado, it was out of Boulder, I think. And they were a promotional company that WCW had, had used to generate interest for their local house shows. Well, he was very close with the executives, including a guy named Eric Bischoff. And anyways, they hired me to be part of them of their hotlines. And my, my role grew slowly over the course of three years and kind of ups and downs. And ultimately, uh, the company was purchased by Vince McMahon. And then everybody who worked for WCW was for the most part, except for talent, maybe they were all let go. So I, I just didn't have a job in wrestling after that. I had been going to broadcast school at that moment. And in the midst of broadcasting school, it's finishing with that, then getting my four year degree at a school called Madonna University, which is run by Franciscan nuns in Livonia, Michigan. Phenomenal education I got, changed my life. So I had parlayed my broadcasting school and the money that I made in wrestling to get, ultimately get a four year degree. Ah, uh, the world of uh, world WWF and WCW. I'm not a wrestling yeah, guy, that's what it was. but I've learned it. But I've learned a lot about wrestling just being on Twitter. Well, but, I, I was, it, but know, isn't it kind it, of funny was, now that when you think about wrestling when it was only one company and now there's two, and the upstart company's actually doing a pretty good job. It's the only thing attached to the cons that can actually work in sports at this point, because not like their I, other two I teams don't. are winning anything. <laughs> Yeah, I don't. Uh, I haven't watched a wrestling broadcast since I left the company in two thousand and uh, two thousand, I think it was. So I have not seen a single show. At the very end of it, it was such a bad experience. I just, I went from you know a huge fan and 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 being a part of it to despising the business. So I no longer. I don't know. Hey, what's, there I are a bunch of wrestling fans now on. that I think despise the business too. You might not be alone. Okay. Well, yeah. That's. I saw an inside look at it. Uh, it's obviously run very differently now than it was run then. Um, but it was uh, it was it was chaos. But chaos in that moment with two companies rivals every night on Monday, every Monday night, rather live shows, dueling it out. It was the best television you'd ever find. And it was the there were the highest rated shows on TV. It was crazy. It was crazy. The numbers yeah, that... that they were pulling every week during the golden era that I was in, um, you, you know, your, your remote control was flipping between two channels to see what these these two companies were doing. It was so fun. That's what competition makes. And when you only have one company it would become decrepit and old and bureaucratic because you didn't have anybody forcing you to be cha- to make changes. And that's where the talent ends up getting on the short side of things because they don't have anyone they can go to. I remember sitting, we were, I think we were in Las Vegas at a, at a show. I can't remember it was a pay-per-view and Eric Bischoff met with the entire, all of the, the whole, all the talent, everybody. And for some reason I was in the room. I think Zane told me to go in there and Eric said, tired of all the fighting. If anybody wants to leave, we'll give you a release tonight. You can go, you can go, you find your way to, Monday Night Raw, you can go work for Vince McMahon if you want today. 
And like just that moment of being able to go, if you don't want my talent, I'll go this place. And then there's a bidding war for talent. And the number of dates you're working decreases because they want their talent happy. And so competition is what breeds better working environments for employees. And if there's only one company, you get what you, is given to you. You got no, you got no recourse. There are two now. And congrats to the cons. You are successful in something sports related because it's not like the football team you run is any successful at all. Anyway, I had to make that joke. Back to hockey uh, and back to your journey. At what point did you start feeling with your, uh, your sexuality that you could talk about it? That you were coming out of the mindset that you were in where it's just not something I could talk about. It's not something I have to think about. It's just I'm hiding it. There's, there's no reason to do anything with this. And when did that mindset for you start to change? Um, when did it start to change? Probably about a year a year ago, I would say, where I started to think maybe this wouldn't be the. And I was out of hockey. Uh, I was laid off by Charlotte in June of 2020 after 13 years. They, you know, slid a piece of paper across the table and said, "You're no longer our employee." And that was it. It wasn't like this. You know, they, they hinted to me they didn't want me back, which is fine. I don't, it's not, you know, it wasn't personal, I guess. I felt a little bit personal because I was there for so long. And so my life had kind of like hit this big, you know, dead end. It was a dead end. I was out of hockey. There were no hockey jobs to be had. There was one job that I was going for um, that I didn't get in the NHL. Then one job that I was, I thought I would get because I was the guy for, for three years and they didn't hire me. It was a huge blow. And, you know, I just lost my Charlotte job before that. So my career was probably over at that point. And, you know, you start to rethink everything. You know, like you start to rethink, you know, for me, I think, I think men in particular take a great deal of who they are based on what they do. I lost my sense of identity by not being a hockey broadcaster. And then I kind of just changed my focus a bit, changed my mindset a bit. And then when I got back into hockey, I, some of the good stuff I had been thinking about carried over and I felt you know, my mentality changed. I feel I can move forward. And I, I did see stories, you know, Luke Prokop had his story and what a amazing re the reaction he got, by the way, was so phenomenal. And the outpouring of love that he got. And that kid had guts. I mean, all that kid had to do, just not talk about it, man. Just continue with your career, put your head down, be a great hockey player. The best will come. And he said, no, I, you know, obviously made the point of, no, this is who I am. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something. That was guts. There's no other way to say it. That kid had guts. And so it was inspiring to see that. I was inspired by that kid. And I thought, boy, if this kid can do it, why, you know, why can't I? And it took me a little bit longer to get there. But Bob had agreed to do the story for me. And I really trusted Bob McKenzie. And boy, did he ever do a phenomenal job. Can I, can I bring this back to this point? Because this, this is impressive. Luke only had Pierre Lebrun. No, no offense to Pierre LeBron, but you got Bobby Margarita out of the cottage, out of the promotional alcohol-making business to write this story. It's not like he's writing story for any average Joe at this point. I mean, he's, he's not really a hockey insider anymore. He's an alcohol salesman, and that's not, a, that's not a dig at Bob. That's just what he is, and he's awesome. We all love him. But how in the world did you pull that off? I, I need to know this. I wouldn't say pull it off. I mean, I knew Bob McKenzie because his son played for us in Charlotte years and years ago, was sweetheart of a kid. Um, and I had met Bob a couple of times. And, and one of my friends who worked for us in Charlotte still remains close with Bob. And I would send him an email probably once a year just to say hello. 
And then leading up to that, I had kind of like, you know, picked his brain about the possibility of, of a hockey broadcaster coming out and what the ramifications would be in his mind. We went back and forth for a couple of, I don't know, for a while on that. And I was, you know, I was mostly concerned, still am, that it would make it very difficult for me to achieve the role of NHL broadcaster if I put up yet another impediment to it. It was already a very difficult spot of trying to get to the NHL. But we, we talked through it, and I asked him if he would do, you know, want to do the story. He said, yes, he would. And we went from there. I felt bad the entire time because, like, <laughs> he did a lot of work. I mean, he did a lot of work, and then he, I saw his first draft of it, and I wanted to make changes to it. And here I am changing Bob McKenzie's article, right? But um, he did allow me to do that. He was, it was so great. I, I could not have, I could not have asked for somebody better to do that. And the story was so well written. And um, I'll, I'll always thank him for that. You know, I, I couldn't believe when I saw it the day it came out. I was like, Bob McKenzie wrote this. It was, it was just it, it blew my mind because Bob McKenzie is writing something at this point in his career. This must be a big deal. Uh, again, for those of you who are not into knee, knee deep into hockey, Bob McKenzie is what the preeminent insider. Adam Schefter so. before Adam Schefter, or you know I, any I number of so. insiders yeah, you think, can think of. He was the guy. I think Bob was was. I think he is, and and many he carries the most gravitas when he speaks. People listen. So yes, I I I agree with you. Yeah, and. Again, when he's writing a story now at this stage in his career or he's doing a broadcast, you know it's something he cares about. And he's going to put us all into it as meticulous a journalist as you're going to get. And he's writing the story and you're going, okay, this is a big deal. And then you think, and in my position, I'm like, oh, this is an, a gay hockey broadcaster? Holy crap, this is amazing. Uh, in some ways, it's more amazing than Luke. But going back to you, like to get to the stage where you felt comfortable to do that, you had to start coming out to people in your own life. And did. the pandemic did a lot of things to a lot of people. And it forces us to rethink what we're doing, especially because if you're in that mode of you're thinking about life, you're thinking about work, you're in that routine, the thoughts that, you know, like this, they don't come to the fore almost at all when you're in that routine. It's almost automatic. And then the pandemic comes, it shuts everything down and you don't have a job and life is now very different. And that requires us to start, you know, thinking about things we haven't thought about. And for you, it must have been your sexuality. And then you have to now start talking to your family about that. And so what, w and it's in the story, of course, with Bob, but what does that look like for you as you start to talk to your family about this, this the deepest secret you have? Wow. It was the, was the toughest part for sure. Calling some people and letting them know. I wanted to let certain people know. Not, I say certain people. I couldn't call everybody in the, in the short amount of time between it happening and my decision, but I tried to reach out to a lot of people and say, Hey, listen, this is going to happen. And, I want you to know before it comes out. And um, at first it was very difficult to say the words out loud. Very, very difficult. I mean, I was sitting with Robert Esch and I couldn't talk. I just, I couldn't get, I couldn't get the words out. And um, it became a lot easier as time went on. That was the best part of it. So I no longer became emotional. I was just able to say it as a matter of fact kind of way. I think and that to me, it's, it's progress. It's, it's the hardest thing to say in your life. Doesn't matter, no matter how much you prepare for it, because I went through it, it's so hard to say it, even to the people you care about, and you know they're going to accept you, right? It's impossible. I wasn't worried about, I wasn't worried about not being accepted at all, actually. Not from, not from really anybody, I would say. And the, the outpouring that I got subsequent to the announcement on that day 
I'll, I'll never forget it because I was calling a European game um, on that same day. So I was like trying to call this game off a computer that's happening in Europe while this my phone is just, you know, <laughs> draining its battery. How did you pull that off? Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't easy to focus on the game. I think I called it a pretty good game, but it wasn't easy. I just had to try to put my phone down and, and call the game to the best of my ability, knowing that I was going to pick up my phone and see a million messages and missed calls. But it was it, it wasn't the best time, to, <laughs> but I, it ended up working that way. So I'm okay with it. One of my favorite coming out stories is, is Colin Martin, um, Minnesota United at the time, and. He was involved in a game the same day he came out, and I remember him saying in one of his interviews, "Maybe I shouldn't have come out on a game day. Probably a little yeah, too that's, hectic that's good, to do that." Exactly. Yeah, there's a little. There's a, for me, there was other stuff going on. So it's it, there's I a little really other thing. If my phone's vibrating every 15 seconds, you no, know, the thing that I did when I came out on on it was my birthday, so I was already getting messages, and I just said, "I'm turning my phone off today. I'm not looking at it for like seven hours." It's not going to ring, and it's not going to buzz if I turn it off. But in some cases, you can't do that. So um, did you hear from anybody after your story came out where you went, oh, my God, I can't believe that that just happened? Um, no, I would say the other way around. I was surprised by a couple people who never talked to me about it. or that. that I mean, the major, I would say the majority – I heard from people I haven't seen and talked to in 20 years were calling and reaching out to me and emailing me. That was amazing. But I did not – there were some people I also was surprised and I never I – never, and a very, very, very small number of people, by the way, that I never, I never heard from at all. Yeah. Hmm. That's interesting. But for the most part, it was an outpouring of love. It was, it was amazing. I did not expect that at all. Well, no, you can never expect how much you're going to get from people you've either never heard of or you haven't heard from in years, that, that's the one thing I think every coming out story has in common is you're going to hear from people like that and the love you're going to get, it's going to overwhelm you. You just you can't price that into your, the reaction, right? You, you, everybody has undersold it. The, re, the, the reaction. You know, every yeah, coming out yeah. story I hear, it's undersold. Yeah, it was amazing. It was, I, was, I would say it was, one of the, it was one of the most liberating moments of my life. It was also one of the most scariest and anxiety riddled day but in the end uh, i believe it was worth it i I believe it was i'm not gonna say this because you've mentioned it before like you you didn't know at the time like is this going to be an impediment to me getting an nhl job and to me when you came out and i know that there are nhl jobs that are open now and and will be in the future and you will apply for them as i will apply for jobs and i will think to myself you know i could not have gotten this job if i was still closeted there's no way, because I wasn't the best version of myself. And you can't be the best person you are professionally, and that means for us broadcasters. You can't be the best broadcaster if you aren't the best version of yourself when there's no microphone on. And so for you, I mean, this upcoming cycle, this summer, where inevitably you will apply for jobs, it'll be the first one where you're out. Yeah. Yeah. And have you noticed for you that are you, do you think you yourself are calling better games now that this is out of the way and now that you're out and there's nothing I, I would say that I am calling the best games of my life, yes, but I, don't, I wouldn't say that had anything to do with it. I don't think so. I just think that I'm, you know, this, I'm the most comfortable I've been in my career because of just where I am and the team and the, and the setting. You know, getting to do games on television here every week just forces you to be better and not be complacent and and I'm getting to work with, you know, Gary Heenan, who's the head coach of Eden College men's hockey team. He does color. And, man, it's so – not every game, but, man, when he does games, it is so fun to work with him. I just love every second of it. 
I still think that for, for me, it's definitely been. I've called better games since I came out, and that was a few years ago. And I'm not obviously as good a broadcaster as you are, but I, I really do think that you are a better broadcaster after you are, or a better person at whatever you do once you get the closet out of your mind. There, it, it's, it's freeing in ways you can't really even price in and you can't even describe. And I think I, being on TV obviously makes us all be better. I've done some games for, you know, high-level people and some big-time productions. But as I said, like, I couldn't have done them the way I did them if I was in the closet. That's yeah, just what I think. I didn't really think about and, that. And maybe, I, I think, well, it, it always comes in for me because it's such an integral part of you. And if you are not in the best mental state, like, I, I think about this with Luke because it's amazing to me. And that story is still amazing to me and it will be forever. Like, he was drafted in the third round of the NHL and the first round of the WHL while in the closet. I don't know how anybody could do that, but you can't be the best person you are, the best version of yourself, if the most important part of yourself in many ways is not known publicly and you're not comfortable with it. And I think, and I've heard you do, I remember the NHL games you did and you worked for, you know, and obviously a very strong AHL team for a long time. Like, I think if you go back and you think about it, this is just me saying it, and I think it comes for all of us. Like the, we're not the best versions of ourselves professionally or personally until we are out, and we have this this huge block in our heads. It's gone. Once it's gone, we can be the best version of ourselves. And I think you'll. I think when you go back, and you look at it, if you ever have a chance to, I think you'll find that you have called better games now that you're out. Like, I think that's just how, I think that's a huge part for all of us. It's like, you can't be the best version of yourself, quite simply, until this is out of the way. And for you, I, I think that if you go into applying to jobs, you'll find that you have a better chance now because the biggest impediment for yourself that none of these people knew about is now out of the way. Well, maybe, yeah, maybe you're right. I, I think that that might be just a personal yeah, assessment. I, I never but... thought about it much, but that's an interesting thing to think about. Well, it's, it's one of those things that I think about as a broadcaster. I go, like, how can I get better? And I could do all these games. I could prep. I could do all these, you know. And I, but then I think, like, if I wasn't out, then there's no way I would be the best version of myself. And I think about that for anybody who's in sports who's gone through this. You know, anybody life has gone through this. You can't be the best version of yourself until you are comfortable with yourself. And you've been able – and you're now able to do that. And, again, it might take time for that realization to come in. It took time for me, but – it's definitely happened. Unfortunately, we don't have as much time as I would like, but I could do a series of podcasts with you on this. But what's the biggest takeaway that you have from your experience and you're giving not just to, to broadcasters, you know, because there are out broadcasters. There aren't many. Obviously, I'd love there to be more and you'd love there, of course, there to be more. But what's the biggest takeaway from your experience that you'd give to anybody listening to this? And you've said this in some ways to the people who have contacted you. And this is obviously something that it gets refined more the longer distance there is between coming out and where we are now. What's the biggest takeaway you've had in this journey of yours to give to anybody who's coming to you asking you, whether it be about broadcasting, about being in the closet or in life? Ultimately, people have to do what they feel is best for them. And so every scenario is not exactly equal to another. But for me personally, I felt it was the best decision at the right time in my life. I'm glad I did it, and I would say that you never really maybe realize how many people are supportive of you until you put something out there like that, and then the outpouring comes in, and it's a, it's a nice experience to have because you 
whatever you had built up, at least for me, what I built up in my head was nothing like the reality that surrounded me. That's what the closet does to you. But also it's, again, think about just in my case, just being able to see, oh, there's an AHL broadcaster that's out in this sport that is so tricky for people like us and still is. It gives me, it gives me hope if I want to go specifically into hockey broadcasting, which I want to. And so that gives me hope that I could do this. And some of the things that I feared are not necessarily going to be around in this sport that I love and care about, even though at times I feel it might not love me back. And I think that that for you is, is the experience just on one person and the, the impact that that could have is, is amazing. Again, Jason, I wish we could talk more. Uh, where can people find you? Obviously, they could find you watching Utica Comets games. And if you're a Devils fan, you're probably doing that right now because the big team isn't doing exactly all that well. But uh, where else can people find well, you? Well, I mean, I guess uh, besides uh, AHL TV and uh, 94.9 and WPNY here in Utica, uh, you can go, if you want to go and follow me on Twitter, you can. I don't really tweet very much, but it's at Jason and underscore Shia, S-H-A-Y-A. And that's my uh, Twitter account. It's the only social media I have. So, um, you know, that's, that's where you can find me there. If there's anything anybody needs, uh, uh, you can reach me through that like you did. And God bless you for it. The, le- the less social media we have, the better. At least it feels like it. Jason, again, his story is awesome. I'm so glad I got a chance to spend some time with you, and we'll talk down the line. Thanks, my friend. It was fun. 